If you have your Bible, and I hope you do this morning, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. If you were not in our community group study or in the New Testament survey Sunday school class uh, last year, or if you were in both those things, you just forgot. Let me remind you what Hebrews is all about. Uh, Hebrews is about a group of God's people, of Christians with a Jewish background, and they are being um, um, persecuted, not severely. Hebrews says it's not yet to the point of shedding blood, which means it's not gotten violent, but it is uh, malicious nonetheless by fellow Jews who are not Christians. They are Jews by ethnicity. They're not true Jews. They do not worship the, the one true and living God in the way that they should. And so they have not saw Christ as their Messiah. And they are merciless in their taunting, their ridicule, and their mistreatment of those Jews who have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And so this individual is writing to encourage them not to give in to the temptation to abandon their new covenant faith and go back to Judaism. His whole point is to say there is nothing left in Judaism because Judaism was fulfilled in Christ. All of those sacrifices, all of those priests, all those temples, all of that was a shadow of the reality that is in Jesus. They were all pointing forward to him. And so he says in chapter 8, I believe at the very end, he says, now that the new covenant has come, the old is passed away. It's no longer in effect. So it's not as if you can say, you know, I tried this for a while. I don't really like it. I'm going back to, to the old ways. He says, the old ways are not effective anymore. God doesn't recognize them. And of course, we know uh, pulling back after the letter was written in the providence of God, if they did not understand from the letter this truth, God allowed the temple itself to be destroyed so that there could not literally be any more sacrifices. The one true sacrifice in Christ had come. And so that's the, the kind of background that we see. Uh, uh, ethnic Jews who have believed in Christ but are tempted to turn away from Him to flee persecution. And I want, us to, uh, I want us to look at verses 14 through 16 this morning, but once again, to kind of uh, get the, the context of what he's talking about here, let's go up to verse 7 of chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading there. Given the kind of um, on-the-fly nature of this, I want to pray one more time and just ask for God's help. Father, we pray that as we look to your word, that you would make... You would make it live to us. You would help us to understand what it says. Father, you would give us the enabling of your spirit this morning for the task of preaching and for the task of hearing. God, even for the task of praying that is to come. God, we pray that this would be, as always, a beneficial time that you would speak to us clearly from your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of resting in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those that heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was, the, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, and as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall in the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, if you don't know, he, uh, the author of Hebrews here is quoting from Psalm 95. We actually read that uh, as our call to worship uh, a few weeks ago. And what's interesting is that in the Anglican Church Book of Common Prayer, which is there to guide their daily worship and their weekly worship, worship always begins with reading Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of, their, of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great kingdom of all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, the height of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His passion, the sheep of His hand. Now that's enticing to worship, isn't it? That makes you want to come before God. But that's not the whole psalm. Hebrews quotes the second half of the song. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, these are people who will go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Oops. That's a lot more sobering, isn't it? It starts with the assurance that we are the people of God 
And yet it ends with the warning. If we are His people, if we love Him, if He has called us and given us His covenant, then do not neglect to hear His voice. Don't be like the rebellious generation. And what's interesting is that that used to be the way every worship service started. We are gathered as the people of God. God is going to speak through His Word. Do not fail or to listen. Hear what He says today and don't be the rebellious generation. However, in the modern day Anglican prayer book, that part's cut off. So it just ends with, we are the sheep of His pasture because... Who wants, to, who wants to start on such the downer note that we might not enter God's rest? Well, Hebrews is not like the modern Anglican prayer book. He quotes from the bottom part, and he has strung together these, uh, these verses, and he points out, they shall not enter my rest. And he says to these Israelites, take care, lest in you there be an unbelieving heart, just like those in the wilderness. Remember, these are the ones who came out of Egypt, Right? They saw the plagues. They saw Moses' staff turn into a snake, and then the magicians, powered by Satan, their staffs turned into a snake. But what did Moses' snake do? Gobbled up all the other snakes. Every time they tried to do something, God proved himself more victorious over all the gods of Egypt. And then even as they left, the Egyptians threw all of their treasure at them, threw clothing and food at them as they went on their journey that they might have provisions and then when Pharaoh's heart was hardened even more and he sent out an army after them, what did God do? He opened the Red Sea and allowed them to walk across on dry land and then swallowed up the Egyptian army. Now they saw all of these things. They saw on the way there the provision of wild pheasants, of manna that came down. But as soon as they got to the promised land, despite all of these miraculous things, despite God making his covenant with them, them promising to do all that the Lord has commanded, upon which He then gave them the Ten Commandments and the law and said, I will be your God and I will protect you and you will worship me. Fear took hold. And they saw the fortified cities and they saw the strong armies and the inhabitants of the promised land and they said, heck no, we ain't going in there, we can't do that. And they were right, they couldn't do that. God was going to do that. But they didn't believe. They didn't hear His voice, they didn't trust. And so what happened? They didn't go to the promised land. They fell in the wilderness. They died there instead of receiving the promise that God had for them. And so what is Hebrews saying? He says, look, we know this. These were our people. This is our history. We, we understand their failure to believe, to hear the word of God and believe. And he says, don't repeat the failure. Don't repeat the mistake. Do not hear the word of God and say, nope, can't believe that, and then perish in the wilderness perish because of unbelief. For them, it's all the more crucial because they are on the edge of two eons. The old covenant, which is passing away, and the new covenant, which has been ratified in Christ. And he says, you, are, you have passed over into this new covenant. If you turn your back now and deny Christ and say, no, I don't want that, I want this. He says, you're not just dying in the wilderness, you're dying and going to hell. It's over for you. There is no other option. There is no other hope. Therefore, as long as it is called today, enter His rest. Trust in Him. Believe Him. Don't think about the workings that you're going to have to do through the old covenant. Says, None of that matters anymore. And He'll go on in the succeeding chapters to show again and again and again how Christ fulfills those things. And notice He says that those who do believe are to exhort one another daily, to encourage one another, lest unbelief creep in. Now, all of that warning leads into the encouragement of verses 14 through 16. 
He's given them a strong exhortation to not fall away, and now he wants to give them aid and comfort. As Martin Luther said, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. He's terrified them with the prospect of losing salvation and falling away, but now he wants to come and he wants to encourage them. It's a, it's a beautiful juxtaposition between the threat of falling away and yet the assurance that God loves us and that well, he will comfort us and motivate us to persevere. Listen again to verses 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Within these three verses are two commands, two exhortations, and all the other words and the phrases serve to hold these things up, to, to move them forward in our minds and encourage us to obedience. So first, first, Hebrews calls his readers, and so he calls us today, to hold fast our confession. That's the first command, hold fast our confession. As Christians, what is that? Our confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? There is no other name given among men under heaven uh, or on the earth by which men may be saved, that He is God in the flesh who took our sins upon Himself on the cross and whom God raised up to be our Savior, the one in whom we have justification. And He says, don't, don't go back on that. Don't give that up. Continue on in that confession even when it becomes difficult. You know, there, I don't know if you remember or not, we were talking last night, I don't even know how we got talking about this, uh, but we were talking about all of the, um, the school shootings that took place back when, when uh, Melinda and I were in high school. Uh, some of you were in high school. And um, um, that kind of just changed the whole dynamic of our culture. I can remember that uh, in my high school, seniors were the only ones allowed to dress up for Halloween. Um, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, out of luck. Seniors got to dress up, walk around in costume all day. And the movie The Fugitive had just come out with Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones. And a buddy of mine and I uh, loved that movie. We had seen it together. We had seen it separately. Uh, I think we'd probably seen it about three or four times. And um, our goal was to dress up like those characters for Halloween. I was going to be Dr. Richard Kimball. He was going to be uh, the federal marshal. And, and during class breaks, he would be chasing me with a cap gun down the hallways. Well, then Columbine happens, and suddenly that just seems like the most absurd idea ever. You just, just can't do that anymore. The, the, you know, the idea of running around even with a toy gun, just not going to happen. Everything changed in that moment. And you think about, uh, you, you, you think about those school shootings, you think, about, um, you think about Columbine, and you think about how just... Um, how difficult not only the situation itself was, but you think about how in the one shooting the kids came through and they were asking the students before they pulled the trigger, do you believe in God? Now, I remember there was a, there was a big debate. What was the actual question that was asked? And there's enough of an issue there there's enough of a situation there when they're just asking you, do you believe in God? And that's going to determine whether or not you get a trigger pulled in your face. But think about the guys just last year that were on the beaches 
with a sword to their neck, and they were asked, do you believe in Christ? Are you one of His people? How easy in that moment the temptation is to deny Him, to do anything possible to save your life. And these guys were facing the same kind of situation, that the, the temperature is rising, that the, 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 the cultural pressure is increasing, the little steam valve is about to give way and physical persecution is about to break out. And what Hebrews is saying, don't buckle. Don't forsake your confession. Instead, hold fast to your confession that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your King. And notice what Hebrews bases that calling on. It's the fact that in Christ we have a superior high priest. He says, the high priest in Jerusalem may be the, may be the one mocking you, but guess what? He's not an effective high priest for you before God. Jesus is a superior high priest. How? Well, notice, first of all, he's a superior high priest because he's passed through the heavens. Isn't that what he says? Since we have a high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, we know that one of the jobs of the high priest every year was to go into the temple, into the most holy place, to offer a sacrifice for himself to be cleansed, then to, be, then to offer a sacrifice for the people of God, and to walk that into the temple and to make intercession, to make atonement by pouring out the blood on the mercy seat. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus didn't go in any temple made with hands. He, he didn't go in any earthly structure. Jesus as our high priest, went directly into the heavens before God Himself. He didn't just appear in a temple before His glory. Jesus, the Son of God, stood face to face with God the Father. He is saying that Christ's sacrifice is the real and perfect sacrifice. That it wasn't an earthly holy of holies, it was a heavenly holy of holies. And so he didn't have to go more than once, it wasn't a temporary reprieve. He established a restoration of fellowship, true eternal fellowship between God and His people. And he loads that into that phrase, he passed through the heavens. He went from this plane of existence to the very dwelling of God. He may be here, and he certainly does later on, reference Jesus' ascension, his passing through the heavens into the very presence of God, the point being there's no other high priest that ever did that. There's no high priest who ever saw God face to face, but Jesus has. He was bodily raised and is, the pre is in the presence of God even today, and it's a unique sign of His authority and of the fellowship we have with God. Therefore, we ought to hold fast to our confession. We ought not to deny the significance of Jesus. Christ is also a superior high priest because of the sympathy He feels towards us. Because of the sympathy He feels towards us. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We are always tempted, I think, to believe that somehow... Um, Jesus got a pass in this life because He was perfect. He was God, right? So the temptations weren't that much. They weren't that real. It wasn't that bad. When the reality is, it was far worse than you and I would ever imagine. I mean, because of the nature of His being, because of the extent of His holiness, His ability to withhold temptation was on a, a, a whole other level than ours. Uh, one person has related it to the idea of the pain threshold, right? 
One person uh, that uh, I know, uh, he may or may not be a member of this church, but he talked about the fact that uh, one time he was going to get shots with one of his younger brothers. His younger brother went first and cried like a baby just when the needles came out. And he was determined that he was going to push through and not cry like that younger brother. He was going to push through and not shed a tear. He was going to be the tough guy. He willed his pain threshold to be harder than that. You know what I'm saying? In other words, ah, it's killing me. The other guy, boom, ain't so bad, nothing, no big deal. I can take it. Now for us, one little temptation comes and what happens? We give in. We're there. We're letting words fly out of our mouth that we shouldn't because we're unable to control our anger. We're unable to discipline our tongue. We're looking at pictures we shouldn't. We're mistreating spouses. We're getting angry and bitter and impatient. Jesus' threshold for temptation was much higher. So the temptations became ever increasingly greater. So whatever temptation you think that, that you've been able to build up a tolerance to, that you've been able to, to, to fight off, Jesus far and away exceeds any of our expectations. He came into a world of sickness and sin and death. He experienced all of the evil that we experience in this life. Every temptation you have gone through, all the details might be different, but the temptation is still the same. The, 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 the base sin that you're being tempted to commit is the exact same, and Jesus has faced them all. There's nothing that you will face in this life that Jesus himself did not face and overcame, persevered in holiness. But what that means is not just that he's put up on a, on a pedestal, but he can sympathize with you. He can understand what you're going through. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He was moved by their plight. When his friend Lazarus died, we even see him knowing he's going to raise him from the dead, and yet he weeps over the loss of his friend and the pain that it's causing his other friends, his, his sisters. The sinful, unbelieving Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. What did he do? He looked over Jerusalem and he wept. He was tempted in every way that we are, pride, lust, gluttony, laziness, selfishness, and yet he overcame. So now he is able to look down and he is able to sympathize with us. He understands the struggle. He doesn't just say, man, come on, just get your act together. Why are you being like that? Come on, let's go, man. This is 2015. You've been a Christian for 30 years. Why are you still struggling with these things? No, he understands the struggle and he's there to empathize with us. This leads us to the second, second exhortation. The first was to hold fast our confession. The second is this. We are called to draw near to the throne of grace in prayer. To draw near to the throne of grace in prayer. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can we hold fast our confession? As a great high priest, a superior high priest, Jesus is worthy of that faithfulness, but how do we do it? How do we do it when the pressure's on? How do we do it when people are threatening physical violence? By calling out to God to give us the grace to do it. Now sometimes, let's just be clear, sometimes that confession is not just a verbal confession, Jesus is Lord. Sometimes that confession is just seen in how we live our lives, right? Uh, someone said that the greatest cause of atheism is not what we confess with our lips, but the fact 
of how we live in our lives, that we deny Jesus, we deny uh, who He is and what His power is as our Savior by the way that we live our life. So sometimes that's the denial, the facing the temptation to sin, and we give into it, and therefore we deny His saving power. So what do we do? We call out before and in the middle and after the temptation for God's grace. We go to God's throne and ask for the grace that we need to hold our confession, to live out the lives as God's people that we are called to. We acknowledge that we need just as much grace to bring us to Christ for faith the first time as we do to live in faithfulness to Christ throughout the entirety of our lives. But we come to the throne of grace, not timidly, not cowardly, not wondering, is God going to listen to me and give me what I need? But we can come boldly and confidently because of the nature of who Christ is and because of His ministry of intercession for us, because of His gracious, sacrificial, even superior ministry as a high priest, we can be assured that God is going to hear us when we call out to Him. That we have been united to Christ and therefore just as Christ is the Son of God, so now we have been adopted as sons of God. And therefore, God the loving Father is going to give us the grace that we need. Imagine the difference that there is now and at the Mount of Sinai when the Jews first received the law. Remember what the Lord told them at Sinai? He warned them again and again, tell the people to stand back because you are approaching a mountain made holy by my presence. I am manifesting myself on this mountain. And that even if an animal touches this thing, it will perish. So the people stand back because they're not a holy people. They are a sinful people. And when sinful humanity encounters a holy God, sinful humanity loses every time. Only Moses is permitted to come up and the people are left, we're told, with great fear and trembling. But he will, Hebrews will go on to say, we don't come to Mount, to Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, where Christ has gone on before us. So we do not come with fear and trembling. We do not come with doubts and wonders. We do not come threatened by God's holiness. Instead, we come confident because of Jesus, because of His work as our Savior and as our ongoing high priest. And we are invited to come confidently before God's throne and receive the grace that we need. To go not because of our holiness, but because of Christ's holiness. Because of His shed blood to go confidently in prayer before God. 